Welcome again to week 18 of the Bible Basics webinar. Greetings from Brantford, Ontario, Canada. Um, this week we welcome a new presenter, Sam Robinson. Sam's another Bible student that meets at our church in Brantford, and he's actually joined me in person this evening. So we don't have to switch computers, we can just slide over in front of the camera. Um, and after our Bible prophecy, Sam is going to take us back to the basics of our Bible reading. He's going to take us back to the toolbox that was introduced to us maybe in week four or five, and he's going to help us how to best determine the meaning of a word in the Bible. But uh, before we get there, let's take a look at another important Bible prophecy. Actually, today, we're going to look at what's often considered the very first prophecy in the entire Bible. It was a promise that God made back in Genesis chapter 3, just after the first sin took place in the Garden of Eden. And, and here's the prophecy. It's from Genesis 3 verse 15, kind of a remarkable prophecy in that it's only one verse long. And I'll read it to you. It says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And when you first read that prophecy, I think that would be a bit of an enigma, especially when I put that verse up on the screen out of context. Who, who is this woman and who is the other character, the thee? And then there's the matter of words that we don't use a lot, like enmity, or even for that matter, the word thee. Uh, we're more used to words like you, uh, which is the same meaning. And, and we'll come to answer those questions in just a minute. But uh, first, just a quick reminder about last week's webinar and the concept of a seed, because you can see that word comes up again in this prophecy here in Genesis 3. Uh, we noted that the word seed is an important part of most of the Bible prophecies that we've looked at so far. And so I'll remind you that last week we concluded that the word seed means a descendant, a future relative. And we talked a fair bit last week about the fact that seed can be both singular and plural. It can refer to one descendant or a whole number of descendants. And uh, we saw that it refers to both of those. And uh, just to remind you of that conclusion, this was uh, the slide we put up. And we concluded that specifically the word seed refers to Jesus Christ as a singular seed represented by a single kernel of wheat and a whole group of faithful people, believers. And just like you take a seed and plant it in the ground, you can have the growth of an entire stock of grain filled with many hundreds of seeds, each one an almost exact copy of the original. And, that, you know, that's the beauty of the language of the Bible. Sometimes the Bible seems to appear, you know, archaic in its language, Old English terms we don't use anymore. But they often portray a lot more meaning than you would get if you substituted those words. We could use the word descendant or descendants but you just don't get that full meaning. And, uh, and we look at these verses, and we looked at this verse at the end of the prophecy section last week that talks about Jesus being the first fruits. So you have a harvest, and Christ is that first seed. He's the best of a harvest. He was the first to be resurrected. He was the first to be made immortal. But uh, as you can see in the end of these verses, it says that um, even as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. So there's going to be another part of the harvest 
which is other faithful people who will be made immortal. And if they're sleeping in the dust, they're the ones that will be resurrected. So Christ is the first fruits of a great harvest, a singular seed that was planted in the grave but rose to life. And as a result of his death and resurrection, there will be thousands of men and women who will be just like Christ when he returns. And, and that's, to me, a pretty cool parable that we find there in, in, uh, in the Bible. So if you come back to our prophecy for tonight, you see that it mentions a seed. There's the seed of a woman, her seed, and there's a seed of another person. And you might say, well, who are these seeds? And are these singular seeds? Uh, or do they represent a multitude of people? Maybe both. Is one of the uh, descendants Jesus Christ? And, and could we be one of those descendants that's spoken of in this prophecy? Well, to iron that all out, you've got to look at the context. And, and if you're a Bible reader, you're going to be familiar with the events of Genesis chapter 3. It's referred to as the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. But perhaps some of you who may be less familiar, we're just going to give a little short refresher. So if you step back to Genesis chapter 2, this is just after God creates Adam and Eve, and God looks at his creation, and he's very pleased. And you'll remember that we talked about the fact that he created man and woman with the ability to choose between right and wrong. So he provided man and woman, Adam and Eve, with a test. So in verse 16 of Genesis 2, God says, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge in good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And so there's the test that God says. He says, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this was a simple test to see if Adam and Eve would be obedient. Perhaps not unlike tests we might make up for our children. your sin would lead to death. And, and there's an eternal principle that's there in the Bible. Um, I'll just put up this verse here from Romans chapter 6. It says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin leads to death. If we sin, we die. And since we all sin, well, we're all going to die. We're, that's to say we're all mortal. And if we'd like to live forever, we depend on receiving immortality from God as a gift. So, so what happened? You probably already know. Um, but in Genesis chapter 3, we find out that the woman who saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. So we don't know exactly how long after the commandment was given that this took place, but one day Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree. And uh, Adam, sorry, Eve looked at the tree, was tempted by the fruit, and she ate it, and she shared it with Adam, her husband. And while we don't have a lot of time to review this event that occurred 6,000 years ago, I, I did jump over one important detail. Part of the reason that Eve chose to disobey God was that she listened to somebody else's advice. And there it is in verse 4. She listened to the words of a serpent. And notice what the serpent says to the woman. He says, you won't. You won't die. You shall not surely die. And you might think, well, why do we have a talking serpent in the garden? Well, we're, we're not exactly told. What we are told is that God created the serpent. Um, that God made the serpent capable of speaking. 
and that the serpent was more intelligent than other animals. And what we do understand is that the serpent made the test more real for Adam and Eve. He made them choose between two statements. And so here's the key details that we know that this, the talking snake tells the very first lie in the Bible. He completely contradicts what God says. He says, you won't die when God said you would. It's the exact opposite of God's statement. And so the test becomes really, would Adam and Eve listen to God or would they listen to a lie? Would they obey or would they sin? And we know that sin resulted because they listened to the lie. And as a result of that, the serpent in the Bible becomes representative of sin and of sinners. And, and you can look to these words of Jesus that become really powerful in Matthew chapter 12, where when he's speaking to the evil leaders of the day, the rulers of the day in the time of Christ, he says that they were a generation of vipers. And you notice why they were vipers? Because they didn't speak good things. They, they spoke evil things. And uh, that's the, the symbol, the type that's there in the Bible. Now, if we move really quickly through the story, there's some consequences. What were the results of that sin? Well, God speaks to the serpent first, and he says, you know, you don't have that position anymore, that superior position. You're going to, you know, crawl through the dust. And it's interesting that the dust and the ground are, are symbols of sin and death. The woman's told that, you know, the process of childbirth is going to be a sorrowful one. Bearing children and raising a family is, is going to come with difficulties and with sorrow. The man's told that, you know, he's going to have to struggle to have the earth bring forth its increase. He's going to have to toil in the field. But the biggest consequence was that the man and the woman were condemned to death. They were going to return to the dust. They were going to die. And they were cast out of the garden. And you think about that, that's a tragic set of circumstances. Last week, David in his class, The Purpose of God, said that, you know, God created man and woman with the ability to, to choose between good and evil so that God could fill the earth with people that would choose to do those things that were right. And yet as a result of what happened in Genesis 3, we find out that that's the exact opposite, that now we're going to have a family that's full of sorrow and struggle and um, suffering because of their sin. Well, that's the amazing thing about this, is that the very first prophecy then in Genesis 3 is that God says, I'm going to find a way to turn the world around. I'm going to reverse the effects of what Adam and Eve uh, sin did in the garden. So if I read this prophecy to you again, you think you'll understand a little bit more about the context. So when God says, I will put enmity between thee, he's actually speaking to the serpent. He says there's going to be a struggle between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, and there's going to be um, a bruising of a head and a, a bruising of a heel. So if we were just to define that prophecy, what we know is that enmity is strife, and that there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman Eve. And on the surface, that might sound like Eve and the serpent wouldn't get along, Perhaps we think about how people don't like snakes and how snakes tend to slither away from humans. But realistically, we know that there's more because the, the snake and the woman represent two classes of people. And the classes of people are identified by their words in the conversation that they had. And so look back at verse three of Genesis chapter three, and you have Eve 
speaking the words of God. She says, you know, God said we shouldn't touch the tree or eat of it because we'll die. So Eve represents those who, although they make mistakes and are sinners, uh, they're the ones that want to obey God. They know the rules of God. And in contrast to that, we have the serpent who said, you, you won't die, contradicts the words of God. And the serpent represents those who give no respect to the commandments of God. That's why Jesus called the leaders of his day a generation of vipers. And uh, we know this is the struggle that has existed ever since the Garden of Eden. Look at Galatians 5. I love how it expresses it so clearly in Galatians. Um, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You know, I feel that struggle. As a human, I, I want to do the right thing, but I have a tendency to do the wrong thing. I have a tendency to pride and, and selfishness. But if we have the influence of God, well, then there's going to be a struggle between those two things, what is right and what is wrong. If there's no struggle, then it's probably just us giving in to our natural sinful tendencies. That's the enmity that God said would, would take place in Genesis 3, verse 15. But what about those seeds? What are we talking about when he says there's now going to be enmity between the seeds of the woman and the serpent? Are we talking about a singular seed, a person? Or are we talking about a class of of people, like faithful men and women, and the struggle that they have? And as you might expect, I think the answer is both. Because there is a struggle that takes place in faithful people. As already noted, if you're trying to be faithful, you struggle with sin. And this verse describes it beautifully. And what's great about James chapter 4 is, look, it uses that same word enmity. There's an echo to Genesis 3. Friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. Well, that's what enmity is, is really being someone's enemy. And the lesson is, is that we have to choose what God says over what the world tells us. Because the world without God is going to, like the serpent, tell us lies. And all of our ideas have to be based upon God and his word. And you can see there, the spirit in us lusteth to envy. That's the spirit that we naturally have. But remember the pattern, that even though the seed can refer to a, a multitude of people, it ultimately refers to Jesus first. And Jesus, it's telling us, would feel that same struggle. He'd have that same struggle with human nature, with right and with wrong. Look what it says in Hebrews uh, chapter 4. The high priest here is Jesus Christ from the context. And it says, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In, In plain terms, that's saying we have Jesus who can feel our struggles and our infirmities, who was in all points tempted like as we are. He was a descendant of Eve. He was the seed of the woman, just like you and I, struggling with doing right. But what's the difference? It says he was without sin. Not once did he give in to any of those temptations. And that's what Genesis 3 verse 15 is telling us, is that in God's plan to change the effects of the, of the sin of Adam and Eve, he would send a descendant, his son, who would struggle with sin just like we did. But by complete obedience, look what happens here. And uh, we can't get into this all tonight, but uh, look what it says here in the prophecy that this seed of Eve, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
would bruise the head of sin. And there's a graphic illustration, a visual description of the prophecy that as you can step on the head of a serpent and destroy it, that Jesus would deliver a crushing blow to sin. And that descendant that's spoken of there is, of course, Jesus Christ. Look at how Timothy describes it here in 2 Timothy 1. It says, Now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death. How do you abolish death? Well, remember that sin leads to death. And the way you abolish death is by providing forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus' sacrifice brought about a means whereby our sins can be forgiven and where we might have an opportunity to have life and immortality through the gospel. Now, there's an awful lot more to share in regards to this topic. And uh, my time is up this evening, but uh, we're going to spend next week's webinar talking about the same subject and looking a little bit more at how Christ was the fulfillment of this prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So what I'll do now is I'll just uh, move on to our next slide and we'll turn the class over to Sam, who's going to talk to us about Bible reading and how to discover the meaning of a word. All right, thank you, Dan, and good evening, everyone. I'm glad you could all make it out tonight as we're considering some of the very important principles that are contained in the Bible that has been given to us by God. Well, as Dan mentioned, my name is Sam, and I'm also a Bible student here in Brantford, Ontario. I love to study the Word of God, and I hope that tonight we can share some of those principles from our own experience that can help you with your Bible study and your Bible reading. Well, as mentioned tonight in our Bible reading section, we want to look at determining the meaning of a word. You've probably noticed as you've gone through reading your Bibles that there's certain things that don't make immediate sense to you, and that's likely because the Bible was translated to us from other languages. We have the Old Testament, which came from the original Hebrew, and the New Testament, which was translated from the Greek. And so as it was translated over into English, there were some things that can become confusing, and so tonight, hopefully we can help you determine the meaning of those things as you go through your Bible reading. And specifically tonight, we're going to be looking at what the word hell means, because like I said, as the words were translated from the original language and translated into our English language, um, we got the word hell in our Bibles, and we want to figure out what exactly that means. And to do this, we're going to take one verse. Obviously, there are a lot of verses in our Bibles that contain this word. And so if there are some we don't mention tonight that you would like us to explain, um, please send us an email or ask us a question. We'd be happy to answer it. But tonight we're going to focus on one example, and that's from Psalm 16, which is a Psalm of David. So in Psalm 16, we have a Psalm of David's praise to God. It's all these things that he's thankful for God, or thankful to God for giving him. He says that he places his trust in God. God maintains his lot. The lines are fallen to him in pleasant places. He has a goodly heritage, and the Lord has given him counsel. So he's praising God and thanking him for all these things that he's provided. And then in verse 9, he says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. 
my flesh also shall rest in hope. And why would his flesh rest in hope? Well, he says, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So what we want to do tonight is figure out what David meant when he said that God would not leave his soul in hell. Why is that something that he's thankful for? So tonight we're going to look at three ways you can determine what a word means. And obviously there's more, but here are some of the more simple ways, and um, um, we're going to go through those tonight. So the first one I've got is a dictionary. And this is probably the most popular way to determine what a word means. It's very easy and it's very quick. Um, you can figure out what a word means in a matter of seconds. Um, so here we've got um, from the Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary, what it tells us the word hell means. So it says it's another world in which the dead continue to exist, or the realm of the devil and demons in which condemned people suffer everlasting punishment. And so that's what Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary tells us. And while that is very quick and it's a very easy way to get a word definition, I'll suggest that it's a dangerous way to do so. Because a word in the dictionary is a current secular use of the word. Because a word gets into the dictionary when it's frequently used, and the definition provided is the most popular way people use the word. And so really a dictionary just gives us man's definition. It doesn't have anything to do with what God says something means. And so we wanna be careful when we're using a dictionary because it's giving us what man thinks. And really we want to know what God thinks because it's his word and he's provided the definition in his own inspired word. So there's another, another um, option we can choose and it's perhaps better than a dictionary and that's a concordance of the Bible. And so here I've got a picture from my concordance. Um, I have the Strong's Concordance written by James Strong, which is one of the more popular ones that we like to use. And a concordance is good because it gives us more relevant definitions. It's more biblically focused. So you'll see in that screenshot there that the far left corner at the top, it's got a number which we might come back to in a future session because that number is useful, useful for um, other resources that um, use the same numbering system. And then to the right of that, you'll see the crazy squiggly looking lines, which is the Hebrew word in the Hebrew language. And to the right of that, we have the English transliteration of that word. And so we find that hell is transliterated sheol. And so if you look Further, the line underneath that, this is perhaps the most useful part of the concordance. It tells us all the ways the word is translated. So actually, the word hell that we're looking at in Psalm 16 is translated as grave just as much as, much as it's translated hell. And then we also find that it's translated pit. And then after that, we have Strong's definition of the word. He says it's the underworld, um, the abode of the dead, a place of no return, without praise to God, where the wicked are sent for punishment. And so a concordance is a helpful tool, but again, we see that in the definition, it can contain the bias of man. Again, this is James Strong. It's his definition of what he thinks hell means. But what is really useful about the concordance is the way it tells us the word is translated. So we'll come back to um, 
the reason why half the time it's translated grave and half the time it's translated hell. So the last reason we want to look to, or the last uh, method we want to look at for interpreting the meaning of a word is to let scripture interpret scripture. And you might ask what exactly I mean by that. Well, the other two ways of defining a word can be helpful, but the best way to do our Bible study is to let the Bible itself tell us what it means. Because as soon as we take prejudice, we take our own preconceived ideas, and we try to force them on what the Bible's telling us, we can run into a lot of problems. It's, it's the same thing where we're taking man's ideas, not God's ideas. And so we want to let scripture interpret scripture, allow God to tell us what is meant by his word. And so to do that, we use the context. And so we can use the context surrounding the word to figure out what hell means. And context is super important. Um, I'll just give an example. I think we went through this a few weeks ago, but you can read in the Bible that there is no God. And you might think, whoa, that's a little, that's a little far-fetched for something the Bible would say, especially after um, knowing it's written by God himself. But that's because we've taken the words out of context. Because if you look at the verse itself, it actually says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. So that's the importance of context. You can take something way out and come up with a whole different meaning. So we want to look at the whole surrounding context of the word to really determine the meaning of it. So we come to Psalm 16. And as we know, it's written by David. And if we look throughout scripture, we have some of God's ideas concerning David, which will help us figure out what is meant by the word hell. Well, in Acts 13, verse 22, we read that God said David was a man after his own heart, which would fulfill all his will. And in 2 Samuel 7, which we looked at a few weeks ago in the covenant to David, David was told that his house and his kingdom would be established forever before him and his throne would be established forever. So if this was going to happen to David and he'd see it, because it wasn't fulfilled in his life, then as we looked at a few weeks ago, he had to be resurrected. He had to be raised so he could see these things before his face. And so what we find in the Bible is the testimony that David was righteous in the sight of God. And so he wasn't worthy of everlasting torment in the supposed hell of popular teaching. And so that's an important principle we need to remember as we come to this psalm to determine what David meant. Well, in the psalm, if we look at the context, we're looking at the verse before and the verse after. So David says, therefore, my heart is glad. So he's joyful. He's happy for some reason. He says, my glory rejoiceth. My flesh, or his body, would rest in hope. So he's hopeful. And um, as we spoke of before, he's hopeful of the resurrection from the dead. Because, he says, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, which is our word Sheol, and he wouldn't see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. So he's anticipating life after death. And then he says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So he anticipates being in God's presence, and he says there are pleasures forevermore. And if you think about it, the only way you can have 
everlasting pleasures is if you have everlasting life. There's no way um, you'd be able to experience something forever if you couldn't live forever. And so really what David is saying here is that he's, he's thankful that when he dies, he will rest in hope, awaiting the resurrection, which we've talked about, to eternal life. So if hell means the place of eternal punishment for the wicked, well, first of all, we know that David was not a wicked person. He was called the um, righteous in the eyes of God. So if hell means the place of everlasting punishment for the wicked, David really shouldn't be speaking of hope of life eternal at the right hand of God. And so we need to figure out another meaning for the word hell, because it can't in this context mean what the dictionary and the um, definition in Strong's Concordance tells us. And that's where the, the, um, the other ways the word is translated, which we looked at in the concordance, comes in helpful. Because what if we replace the word or the meaning of the word hell and, all, and use the word grave? It, make, it gives the verse a whole different meaning. So if we take the word hell to mean the grave, just simply the place where you're buried when you die, well, we have to make sure that meaning fits with the rest of the scriptures. Because if it doesn't fit with any other verse in scripture, then there isn't really any ground for us to use that meaning. Well, 1 Samuel 2 verse 6 says, The Lord killeth and maketh alive, he bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. So that's simply saying, and again, look, if you notice, that's the word Sheol. It's also translated hell, but it's translated grave here. He, God brings to the grave, so he has the power to take our life again. We die, we go to where we are buried, and he can bring us up again. We can be resurrected. That's the hope that David was talking about. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10 says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave. Again, the word Sheol, whither thou goest. And so if the grave there, Sheol, also translated hell, again means everlasting place of punishment and torment, where we are conscious of those punishments happening, then this verse doesn't really seem to fit, because it says that there's no knowledge, no wisdom, in the grave. We aren't conscious at that time. Psalm 86, 13. For great is thy mercy towards me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest grave. That's the word Sheol again. And so it's simply talking of God's power to deliver us from death, to raise us up to life eternal. And so really, we can take that to any other verse in scripture, and we can insert the word grave and the definition of grave, that's really just, that's really all hell means. And so I suggest that every time you read the word sheol, hell or grave, you don't think of everlasting fire or torment or punishment, because that's simply a, an idea that man has forced upon the, the word. Because every place you read the word sheol, the idea of everlasting fire and punishment doesn't make sense in the context. It doesn't fit what the Bible is trying to tell us. And so really, it simply means the grave. And so I suggest that every passage you read in scripture, you should insert the word grave and the idea of grave, and it'll make a lot more sense to you. So just as a conclusion here, 
what David was saying in Psalm 16 when he said, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. What he really meant was that he looked forward to the day when God would raise him from his grave to receive the promises made concerning the establishment of his kingdom and life eternal and pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. And so I hope that's been helpful to you. I know we went through that fairly quick. Um, there's a lot more time we could spend on this subject. Um, and so if you do have any questions or other verses you'd like us to help you with, then please let us know. You can send us an email. You can ask us um, after we conclude tonight, and I'm sure we'd be very happy to help you. Um, just as um, announcement for next week, for our Bible prophecy section, we are going to be speaking on Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman. And for the Bible reading section, we'll be talking about what the word Satan means. And so we'll be doing a similar topic to this week, um, trying to figure out what Satan means in Scripture. So that's all for tonight. Um, thank you all for listening.